information in this podcast is meant for the education of clinicians in rehabilitation. This is not meant for personal medical diagnosis and treatment, and individuals should always consult an appropriate medical practitioner. Hello, and welcome to the ANPT Vestibular Special Interest Group podcast on recent updates on vestibular migraine and Meniere's disease. I have two speakers with me today, Helena Esmonde and Sarah Oxborough. Helena is a neurologic clinical specialist who provides patient care at advanced physical and aquatic therapy in suburban Philadelphia. She is also the co-founder of Vestibular First, a medical device and education company that offers affordable infrared video goggles and vestibular educational tools. Helena loves teaching at the university level as well as vestibular education courses, including a recently released online vestibular first course on eye movements and vestibular pathology, which she co-taught with Sarah Oxborough. She and Sarah have many more courses planned, including one on migraine versus Meniere's disease, because treating these patients can be very challenging. Sarah Oxborough has been practicing in the area of vestibular rehab for over 16 years. She previously was a clinic program director at the National Dizzy and Balance Center and has recently moved back to patient care in the ENT department of M Health Fairview in Minneapolis, Minnesota. She serves as adjunct faculty at the University of Minnesota, teaching the vestibular content as part of the neuro rehab unit. Sarah also loves teaching and recently joined Vestibular First to bring online continuing education courses to various health providers. Both speaker Esmonde is a co-founder of a company that makes medical devices and educational tools related to vestibular care. Speaker Oxborough is a director of education for the same company. This lecture does include a brief discussion on the clinical benefits of infrared goggles within the context of a vestibular exam and differential diagnosis of vestibular conditions as demonstrated in the academic literature, but this lecture does not specifically recommend any particular brand. Thank you both for joining me today. I'm looking forward to hearing what you have to say about this topic. Thank you for having us. We're super excited. Thanks, Maureen. So Sarah, can you describe what um, a vestibular migraine is and how does that differ from Meniere's disease? Yeah. So first of all, vestibular migraine shares a lot of similarities with Meniere's disease, which is why we wanted to do this talk um, at CSM and come on the podcast today. So it can make the differential quite tricky at times, and we continually learn more about that differential. There, uh, there's even thought out there that that migraine perhaps could even be some that veneers could be some type of vestibular migraine, and there's research coming out about that a little bit more. Um, but vestibular migraine typically is characterized by moderate to severe spells uh, lasting five minutes to seventy-two hours with symptoms that can be described as true vertigo, as well as head motion induced dizziness with nausea. The symptoms must also be of moderate or severe intensity. And those are kind of the, the, the definition and fit with the uh, diagnostic criteria. The big differentiator, and we'll talk about this throughout the podcast, is the hearing changes that are present with Meniere's disease. Um, the other kind of Separation between the two is Meniere's typically is thought to be a peripheral fluctuating vestibular disorder, while migraine, of course, is thought to be more routed in central vestibular pathology. Great. 
So how would a vestibular migraine differ from a typical migraine that everybody kind of hears about? Yeah. And a a lot of patients will say, well, I don't have migraine because I don't get headaches. And we've learned that we don't always have to have a headache to be, to have migraine at all. Um, Migraine is a multi-symptom neurologic disorder and headache is just one symptom of that disorder. Same with dizziness. So in vestibular migraine, typically patients, well, they will get dizziness and that's just one of their symptoms. Um, and actually the there's research the ICHD criteria discusses that in only 48% of spells does the dizziness and the headache kind of come at the same time. And if you look at that same criteria, which is available online, you'll see um, that they have to have spells that last between five minutes and 72 hours. Half of the spells have to have one of these three, headache, visual aura, or photophonophobia. So if you have dizzy spells with light and sound sensitivity, you meet that criteria. You don't have to have a headache and follow that diagnostic criteria. Of course, you want to rule out other pathology like veneers um, and any retrochochlear pathology. The other interesting thing is uh, we'll hear a lot of patients talk about how they used to have what they consider classic migraine and they don't get those anymore. And then they present to our clinics with what sounds like dizzy migraine, vestibular migraine. And there's research to support generally classic migraine predates vestibular migraine by about eight and a half years. So we do see this this change of this migraine over time. So I do often ask about patient history of migraine, um, family history of migraine, and even if they haven't had any headaches, just keeping my head aware about what other symptoms could fit into a migraine pattern. Okay, that's great information. So when you're doing a subjective history on a patient, what symptoms would a patient report when they're, if they have a vestibular migraine or they have Meniere's disease? Sure. Yeah. So these, I think we're going to hear kind of similar things. And that's why, again, we wanted to bring this information because they are so similar. So both can have spells of dizziness that last minutes up to hours. Um, But if you look at the diagnostic criteria for migraine, the spells do last longer than those for Meniere's. And and with Meniere's, the the definite Meniere's last for generally only 12 hours where vestibular migraines can last up to three days. Um, Again, we'll see uh, spells of dizziness that kind of come on without triggers, what patients or they don't know their triggers just yet. Um, The dizziness doesn't really go away no matter what they do, and that's a good differentiator than BPPV. They can't find a position where they're comfortable. And then in Meniere's, you're going to hear these complaints of maybe unilateral tinnitus, unilateral fullness, um, or a change in their hearing. So the subjective history really gives you the first step into clue you what might be the difference between between the two of those. Okay. And what is the prevalence of vestibular migraines and Meniere's disease in the population? Is there certain age ranges this is more common in or genders that we find it more? Helena, do you have anything to say about that? I do. So what we know is that As far as age of onset for migraine and vestibular migraine is also uh, true with this, the onset can technically occur at any age. The average onset of age is around 40, slightly younger in females at about 37 and slightly older in males at about 42. 
but there has been report of a late first attack at 72 years of age. So that's a pretty big range, unfortunately. Um, but certainly the majority of folks are kind of what I would consider to be, you know, young adulthood, middle age kind of range. Um, it is also true as far as um, predominance in females. So it's five to one female to male is the ratio there. Um, and Sarah already alluded to this, but in older patients, it's not un uncommon for kind of headache, migraine to be in their kind of younger years. Like every time I had a period, I got a headache type of complaint. And then like now they're just getting these kind of isolated episodes of vertigo, dizziness, or even just off balance feeling. And this is again, where the descriptors of symptoms can, can be a, a foe, I feel, because it can be so uh, variable between people and how they maybe experience these symptoms. So we do look for those other harbingers, like, you know, light sensitivity and things that might kind of point us towards migraine and vestibular migraine specifically. Um, interesting for the ch a group, of, as far as children, um, they do suspect that there is um, kind of a condition which is commonly called benign paroxysmal vertigo, which is annoying because it's very close to BPPV, but it's not the same thing. Um, some people call it the migraine of childhood. It has a strong association with the family history of migraine and may predict the development of a typical migraine later. So these children um, are experiencing episodes of dizziness, vertigo, um, that again, last minutes to hours, they may have some nystagmus, it's kind of nonspecific, a central presentation for sure. Um, it's usually benign, again, that's, that's why it's in the word, benign paroxysmal vertigo. So, you know, it's interesting because to me, vestibular migraine, you know, it, it's, 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 I, if someone comes in and they're like, this, this has been kind of weird and elusive and kind of coming and going, I always suspect migraine because like, that is how migraine can be is just kind of this kind of patchy, random or seemingly random, you know, and we'll talk more about triggers, but Sarah mentioned already, like, you know, sometimes people will say, yes, every time I have a glass of red wine, boom, I get this, you know, kind of dizziness. And so they can kind of identify some trigger. Um, but it's not unusual too for triggers to change over time. My husband actually used to be able to drink wine just fine. And he had a history of migraine, but he was okay to have alcohol. And now every time he does, he gets an immediate migraine. So it's just interesting, you know, that kind of group really is a, a bit difficult to pin down. Um, and then patients end up feeling pretty frustrated about that, I think. Um, in contrast, um, as far as Meniere's disease, um, it's certainly much more rare. So whereas it's one in 100 people have vestibular migraine, only one in 5,000 have Meniere's disease. Um, and the typical age of onset is between 20 and 50. So that's more similar, kind of that same mid-adulthood range. Um, and Folks with Meniere's disease, um, you know, they are more likely uh, to kind of be 50-50 on men versus women. So it's, that's kind of where the numbers sit. Um, so just as likely for uh, a man to have it as a woman. So that's where we are on those numbers. Okay, great. Can you explain a little bit of, about the physiology behind each of these disorders? And then also how would um, a patient get diagnosed with one of these disorders typically? Sure. So as, as Sarah mentioned, 
Um, for migraine, it's a complex neurological disorder. Um, they call it genetic, but genetic can mean I got it from my parents or grandparents or whomever. Um, but it also is just a matter of how are your genes coded essentially. So, um, you know, some people say, oh no, there's no one in my family that's had migraine. Well, that doesn't make it not coming from your genes that you're getting this kind of um, hypersensitive um, system. So that's what's happening. The brain um, becomes easily um, triggered. <laughs> uh, I call it the cranky brain. Um, and you know, the actual physiology is super complex. Um, there's kind of a mix of, um, kind of neurotransmitters and blood flow changes that occur when a migraine gets set off. Um, but it's usually, you know, due to some sort of circumstances. So again, that can be complex. I've heard Dr. Carey from Johns Hopkins and Dr. Teixito out of Delaware speak on this topic and they call it kind of a threshold theory. So a patient might say, oh, yes, I always get a migraine when a storm rolls through, pressure changes. Um, other folks are like, oh, yeah, whenever I have a lot of stress, definitely going to get one. Somebody else may say, sometimes when I'm dehydrated, when I get one, and sometimes I don't. Um, but the times that they do, they probably also got poor sleep or some other kind of combined factor that tends to make them more vulnerable um, to cross that threshold uh, where they go into migraine land, if you will. So. Um, you know, that's kind of how we understand migraine. And of course, you could really go deep into this uh, physiology, because like I said, it's a kind of a whole huge cascade. There's lots of complex pictures out there that try to explain it. But that's kind of the summary. And I think it captures it pretty well. Um, and, you know, this is why it's difficult to diagnose, because you're not going to see it on your typical structural MRI, right? This isn't um, a structural problem. It's a, in the moment, a functional problem. So they have captured some kind of indications of vestibular migraine on functional MRI, which makes sense. Uh, but nobody's getting functional MRIs every time they get symptoms because that's, you know, not really practical or economical. Um, and uh, so they're looking to find other ways to more have, have more objective kind of ways to diagnose vestibular migraine for, for the moment where you have or stuck with the criteria, <laughs> which Sarah already explained. Mm -hmm. um, so if you're able to, you know, match up with that criteria. And this is obviously something that happens over time. So you're not going to be able to diagnose this at your first vestibular migraine, right? Because we're looking for at least five episodes. So already, you know, that early point, it, it can be unclear. Um, so this is where we kind of have to be patient and, and kind of look for that pattern. Um, for Meniere's disease, um, again, it's complex and it's actually really not well understood. You know, the vestibular system we all know lives deep inside the inner ear. What they can get with imaging is that there's some sort of intermittent inner ear swelling. Um, they sometimes call it endolymphatic hydrops, uh, but they don't really know, like, is that the cause of the symptoms? What's actually causing that? Um, people have theorized, again, that it's related to migraine or it's related to autoimmune disease or it's related to genetics. And there are some links there, but again, there's no one-to-one -one <laughs> on any of those. Um, so when that swelling occurs, that definitely uh, is related to some, you know, kind of episodic, for lack of a better term, damage, um, usually first to the hearing. And then over time, as these episodes occur repeatedly, um, then you start to see vestibular involvement. 
So the definitive Meniere's disease criteria are two or more spontaneous episodes of vertigo lasting 20 minutes to 12 hours, um, audiometrically documented low to medium frequency sensorineural hearing loss in one ear, although someone can start to get Meniere's on the other side after they've added on one side, that does occur. Um, Defining the affected year at least one occasion before, during, or after one of the episodes of vertigo. So basically the damage occurs, the person has the symptoms, whether it's simply the hearing symptoms, um, the fullness in the ear, the tinnitus, some hearing loss that they can notice over time after these episodes have occurred. Um, and then, you know, with that, then some vertigo that goes along with those sensations of, of the hearing uh, issues as well. Um, the fluctuating oral symptoms are very common in this group, although you can get some hearing symptoms in migraine as well, unfortunately. Um, and then it, not better accounted for by any other vestibular diagnosis. So that's always a hint that this is, again, elusive because we were leaning on these episodes to recur in a way that we can kind of almost catch them in the act. Um, in particular with Meniere's disease, you know, trying to, cause then the, after the damage occurs and the incident's over, the body will try to heal that area. So, you know, if they go get hearing tests after their first episode, like four weeks out, they may have normal hearing at that time. <laughs> so you can see how that would be tricky to diagnose until you started to have repeated episodes. Um, and just to give you guys a clue for those of you who are not as into hearing testing as I am not, I had to, you know, kind of remind myself of this every time. Uh, that low, mid to low frequency is going to be um, a lower pitch. So this is uh, voices are kind of in that one to 2000 Hertz range, um, whereas they're going to still be able to hear a bird tweet. That would be like a high pitch 6000 Hertz. So that's kind of like a way to kind of think about um, what kind of sounds would be harder to hear once that loss is more permanent or more noticeable for longer, you know, during or after episodes. Um, so. Ooh, that's a lot, right? <laughs> no, that was great. That was great information. <laughs> Very helpful. Um, so from a PT perspective, perspective, if you're doing like a subjective and objective, you know, history or, and then going into the objective testing part of it, what will help you to determine kind of like a differential diagnosis between these two disorders? Sure. Um, so Basically, objective findings you could imagine with vestibular migraine could be normal, particularly between migraine episodes. So you do all your vestibular tests, everything looks great, <laughs> no central findings, no peripheral findings. Um, so that's pretty frustrating again sometimes to the patient. They're like, I swear I had vertigo last week and now <laughs> you're not seeing anything. Um, so you should go back to your vestibular migraine criteria and just kind of talk through it and, and don't lead the witness, but try to get a sense of whether they're experiencing what would fit that criteria. But um, there are times where, especially as vestibular migraine has been present longer, um, you may start to see during the migraine for sure is more, most likely, and then even between migraine, sometimes um, some different findings. So they might have nystagmus during a hyperventilation test. You might see a nystagmus during a head shaking test. You might see it with positional testing and a vibration induced nystagmus test. All of these, um, however, should not show a nystagmus that fits like your typical BBBV pattern, for example. 
So you put them into a Dix-Hall pike, and instead of seeing a nice left torsional upbeat nystagmus on the left Dix-Hall pike with nystagmus and vertigo that lasts about 10 to 15 seconds, this is going to be like a weird, maybe like a downbeat or, you know, kind of drifting of the eye, not that brisk, like, you know, how do you feel? I feel a little weird, like, you know, so it's not going to match that, you know, kind of classic picture. Um so, you know, we can, because these pathways can kind of get irritated over time or however you want to say it, they're not as functional, um, you might start to see some signs. Um, but again, don't be surprised if you don't see any. And that's, again, part of what makes this a, a challenging diagnosis for sure, especially early uh, when they're just having their first few episodes of vestibular migraine. As far as Meniere's disease, again, could be normal if it's early in that disease process. So they've only had one or two or three episodes Maybe it's mostly been hearing symptoms. They're not getting a lot of vertigo yet. By the time they're coming to you as a vestibular PT, they probably had at least a couple of vertigo episodes, maybe several. Um, and the longer they are along, the more episodes they've had, the more likely it is that you'll find findings for a hypofunction on the side that's you know being affected by Meniere's disease. So we're going to get your classic positive head impulse test, you know, with a you know positive on that affected side. Um, vibration induced astigmatism, you'll probably see a beat towards the good side, so to speak. Um, dynamic visual acuity may become impaired over time. They're testing at four lines difference, something like that. So that's certainly, um, especially with that history, where you start thinking, oh, this is really looking more like Meniere's disease. Okay. And is there anything that you would tend to find on like a standard ocular motor exam that would be off, like doing saccade, smooth pursuit? So for Meniere's disease, not because it's a peripheral disease. So that's good. Uh, for migraine, you might, you might find some central signs. You might find a little bit of abnormal saccades. You might find slightly abnormal smooth pursuit. The strongest thing is actually more of a historical report, which is sensitivity to motion. Um, so motion sensitivity is strongly tied to vestibular migraine. It's very common for patients to report a history of that. Um, so it's not necessarily a physical finding. I mean, you might notice it when you're having them do um, VOR cancellation where they have their thumbs out in front of them. Then that's that kind of visual motion sensitivity test in its own way. Like we think of it for concussion with the VOMS. Um, so they might not love that. <laughs> So that's kind of a tip as well, but obviously it's not an official diagnostic, you know, not all of these are, or you might see it and you might not. And that's, I think the hardest part about it. That's a, the challenging aspect of it. For sure. For sure. Anything else thing, you'd like, like to add, Sarah? Yeah. One thing I'll have my patients do is if, because Selena had mentioned, like, we can't always figure this out right away. Sometimes it takes repetitive spells and tracking. So I will talk to my patients about you know, if everything kind of comes up clean, we're not sure if it's migraine or Meniere's, we'll talk in a bit about treatment, how we can actually start treatment somewhat similar. And then I will ask them to come in the next time they have a spell because mm -hmm. they can make it in safely to the clinic and um, slap a pair of goggles on them, which is really helpful to be able to see. So typically in Meniere's, we would expect to see almost somebody that resembles a person who's had an acute neuritis. They're going through a vestibular storm. There should be some kind of uh, like left or right beating nystagmus that would indicate, you know, probable Meniere's in that situation. Certainly we could see that with migraine, but it's not going to be so clear cut because uh, Meniere's we've talked about being a little bit more of a peripheral pathology. So we're going to see this horizontal nystagmus one direction, but with migraine, maybe you'll see nystagmus, but it 
it's not going to fit as similar as a pattern with veneers. So I like to get goggles on my patients shortly after a spell. And also BPPV is another diagnosis that can cause episodic vertigo and patients always aren't good at describing the duration of their symptoms. So just to rule that out as well, mm-hmm. if you haven't been able to have any findings um, or if they can't get into a clinic, I've even had patients just hold up their cameras of their phones and record their eye movements so that they can show me next time they come in and that helps with diagnosis as well. And then like I said, I'm a big fan of VOR cancellation as an unofficial test for migrainers. It should be an official test, maybe someday. <laughs> More research needed. Right. Yeah. Let's do exactly. it. Exactly. Um, is there a point in time where if a therapist is seeing patients with symptoms that they think may be suggestive of a migraine or Meniere's disease that they should refer out to a physician, you know, to get a formal diagnosis. Right. So migraine is kind of an unhappy circle, but I will say if I see um, the history is, is strong and they have some central findings, I will suggest to the primary care doctor to consider a neurology referral I'm always a little bit worried that someone who starts to have a bunch of central findings that we're thinking it's migraine, but it's actually something more serious. Um, so in that group, I will, you know, say, Hey, I'm seeing some strong central findings. It might just be migraine, but I want to make sure anything else gets ruled out. You know, maybe the, the primary care wants to order an MRI themselves, or they want them to see a neurologist to do their own workup and then, you know, consider imaging there. Um, so that's less about diagnosing migraine and more about making sure you're ruling out other mimickers, if you will. Um, and then getting a neurologist on board who's comfortable with migraine is best anyway, because then if and when it makes sense to trial some sort of medical intervention, they're on board and they can help with that process, which we obviously cannot manage. And some primary care physicians are comfortable with managing migraine. Um, and we'll talk about, you know, kind of the similarities and differences to how they get managed, perhaps from a medication and treatment perspective. But, um, most of what certainly primary care doctors know is more about managing headache, and that doesn't always work in managing the dizziness from vestibular migraine. So Meniere's disease is much more straightforward. You absolutely, if you're suspecting it, at least get them out for a hearing test. Um, even if it comes back normal, you've got that baseline. So if they get these repeated episodes, we can start to compare and see if they dip into that um, low to mid frequency hearing loss, that it would be kind of a harbinger of potential Meniere's disease. Um, and then an ENT can do vestibular function testing uh, for a patient that's had at least two or more episodes. Um, that way they can start to see if they're getting any signs of vestibular loss on one side and things that would be more characteristic of, you know, someone getting that kind of unilateral loss from repeated episodes that would be characteristic of Meniere's disease. If you send somebody to get vestibular function tests um, by an ENT or audiology office with migraine, um, that's fine. But know that your results could vary wildly. Sometimes they will have peripheral findings, um, which might sound strange and they don't fully understand why it's true, but it is true that that is the case. Um, and they're going to feel pretty rotten almost certainly. <laughs> Yeah, it's from Go ahead, like Sarah, I know you want to add something on that. <laughs> yeah, I think like we're working in an ENT clinic now, and I work right across from our uh, vestibular audiologist. So I'm fortunate that all of my patients can get that testing if need be. And um, you're right, you know, if it's one, one or two spells, we may not go down that route. Um, but 
I think like Alina said, a hearing test is very important because we need to establish a baseline. And then we'll talk to patients about also, in addition to coming in and getting goggles on you, after you've had a spell, let's recheck your hearing right after you've had a spell. So we have that conversation as well. Um, and there's there's specific tests that's done. Often it comes up normal, but it's called an ECOG test. And that can be helpful in early many years when we maybe don't have a hypofunction yet because it ha we haven't had as many spells of dizziness. But if you can have someone do an ECOG test shortly after they've had a spell, and it's positive, that might tell you, it suggests um, endolymphatic hydrops and that there's potential extra fluid in the inner ear. And that can actually give you an indication early on that this could be Meniere's versus migraine. So I think we both agree it's good to at least loop in an ENT and an audiologist. And if you're fortunate enough to have access to VNG and rotational chair um, and ABR and ECOGs, that that's really probably the gold standard in getting your, your patients the best diagnosis. Great, very helpful. Um, our, I know we mentioned that typical migraine with aura can be associated with potentially vestibular migraine down the line, but there are there any other diagnoses that make a patient more susceptible to either one of these conditions? Yes. So first of all, migraine begets Meniere's and Meniere's beget migraine. No. Um, <laughs> so they have found that migraine occurs in about 10% of folks with Meniere's. So it's not everyone with Meniere's is going to have migraine, but there is a group that does. And that's compared to that 3% of kind of the general population has vestibular migraine. And then Meniere's disease um, occurs in about three and a half percent of folks with migraine compared to about 1% in controls. So again, a little more common. Um, so it does not mean everybody with migraine is going to have Meniere's, but Again, don't be surprised if you see both, um, which makes differential diagnosis extra fun, right? Um, <laughs> so that being said, there are some other conditions to kind of look out for. And correlation, of course, does not equal causality, um, but it is true that um, autoimmune conditions have been seen to be more common in folks with Meniere's disease. Um, so whether, you know, Again, that relationship is definitely not yet understood. Is it causality? Is it just kind of they tend to, you know, be more common in, in folks that have one or the other, but they don't necessarily cause each other. Um, that's just something that they're still exploring. Um, similarly, um, again, migraine is more common in folks with autoimmune disease as well. Um, again, they may not at all be the root cause of each other, but um, certainly managing them can be... <laughs> more challenging um, because migraine can perhaps trigger a flare of autoimmune or uh, autoimmune flare can trigger migraine. So that's not fun for anybody. So just to be aware of those associations or kind of relationships and then BPPV, which I believe Sarah already mentioned um, as being something we should rule out. <laughs> but on the flip side, it is uh, more common in both groups of people with migraine and people with Meniere's disease. So there's a twofold increase of developing BBV when you have a history of migraine of any kind. Um, so for that, I would just say, you know, again, we don't really know is it causality or what's going on there. You know, does it have to do with kind of an inflammatory situation affecting the vascular system around the peripheral system? There's theories. 
But at the end of the day, um, check for it for sure, because we know that's very treatable. That's one thing that you can do to help your patients with migraine um, that they would be very grateful to have addressed. Um, and pretty obviously, I would say it's pretty significantly increased between eight and 38% is a wide range on the uh, the research there. But uh, of those with Meniere's will have episodes of BPPV and that's damaging the peripheral system. So that makes sense that that could affect the actual physical structure of the, you know, Vista apparatus and where the otolith, you know, organs live, where they might get, you know, some disruption there for the otoconia. So um, it's more often seen in females to get that BPV in those with Meniere's and then of course, more often in advanced disease, which makes total sense again. So um, we can watch for that in both those groups. And then last but not least, persistent postural perceptual dizziness. So um, <laughs> the elephant in the room. So someone can have vestibular migraine, which is kind of this episodic dizziness, and then have what I like to call the learned dizziness, you know, where we kind of start to feel a bit off all the time um, because our system is having trouble adapting um, after these episodes. Um, so that's pretty, um, pretty strongly associated in the sense that we would want to consider it. Um, if someone comes in with complaints of constant, you know, off feeling and fits the persistent postural dizziness, uh, criteria, right. 3PD, um, doesn't mean they don't also have vestibular migraine is what I want to say. <laughs> so, um, you know, you're kind of maybe co-treating and luckily, uh, a lot of the treatments are similar as far as gentle habituation, you know, pacing, things like that, working on balance. And we'll talk more about treatment shortly for vestibular migraine, but you can see how that would, you know, kind of also be helpful with 3PD. Luckily, migraine um, is much less likely that they will develop 3PD. It can happen um, because of that. Again, you're affecting the vestibular system. The brain might not kind of love that over time and might go that direction. But as far as the numbers that they have out there, um, it's, it's less frequent to, of a consideration compared to vestibular migraine. So. Great. Is there any pharmacological interventions that would a, assist a patient in their ability to participate in rehab or uh, also to just help them manage the symptoms related to either the migraine or Meniere's disease? Absolutely. So um, from a migraine standpoint, uh, again, most of the research does surround headache migraine and not vestibular migraine. And most doctors will kind of try those meds that are known to help with headache migraine in the hopes that it will help with <laughs> vestibular migraine. Um, you know, again, there's not a ton of studies that have exclusively exclusively focused on patients with vestibular migraine and pharmacological treatments, but that doesn't mean that trying some of those meds couldn't be useful. Um, so they're out there and that would require the, you know, specific guidance of someone who's familiar, which might be a neurologist, might be a primary care physician, you know, whoever kind of feels comfortable as best as you can find somebody. Um, and they may even go with some of the other treatments that have been tried for headache, which is bot Botox injections, cephali, which is the trigeminal nerve stimulation, vagus nerve stimulation, hormone management, you know, looking at triggers, trying to manage those things, even supplements like magnesium, um, which again, those may tamp down the headache component, but not dizziness depending on the patient. So just to be aware um, that it's it's a little more challenging there. For Meniere's disease, um, the only official recommendation is to decrease salt intake. Sometimes they'll also suggest decreasing 
alcohol, tobacco, caffeine, things like that. But none of that has a ton of like, oh yes, if you stop, you know, taking in a lot of sodium, you'll definitely won't get a Meniere's disease episode. It's not like that. Like it's just something they recommend to try to decrease these um, kind of episodes. If someone's getting a lot of episodes and then what does a lot mean is really up to the patient and the doctor, um, usually the ENT at that point, um, the otolaryngologist is kind of saying, all right, you know, you've had 10 Meniere's episodes in the last two months. That's you know too much. Or, you know, kind of what, when does it get to the point where it's disruptive and we don't see an end in sight? Because sometimes Meniere's will quote unquote burn itself out. Well, they'll start to have less and less episodes and it'll kind of go away. Um, so it's case by case, whether it makes sense to basically inject gentamicin intratympanically to basically ablate or cut off any information from the vestibular system at all. So you're creating a permanent hypofunction, but then you're not going to get these fluctuant episodes of vertigo, uh, which could be pretty desirable if the patient's been really struggling with them being unpredictable and, you know, as opposed to a steady state situation, which we can then rehab. Um, surgical intervention sometimes would include, you know, lymphatic sac surgery, stimulant nerve uh, resection or, sec, you know, kind of a lymph, a lymph, uh, labyrinthectomy, all these things that they can do to basically end, <laughs> end, the, end the system, but then, you know, make it stable. But the risk of hearing loss, complete hearing loss on that side is there. And so folks don't want to go there. So again, it's very case by case. Um, so, you know, just kind of have the patient work with the physician on that. Well, that leads us into what can we as PTs do? Like what interventions can we provide, um, for patients with either of these conditions? And Sarah, I don't know if you, you working in like these, with these patients a lot, do you have a, any insight into what's helpful? I do. And actually, even just to kind of go off of what Helena just said, um, there's some, she mentioned magnesium. And this is something I will talk to my patients about and certainly, you know, have them talk with their doctor, but there is good evidence, some, let's say some evidence coming out about um, that low magnesium is associated with cortical spreading disease. So supplementing with magnesium um, has been shown to decrease frequency. And this is again studied in the regular migraine population where we borrow some of our research from. But during an episode, during a migraine, they did a study and showed that 50% of uh, patients had low magnesium. And then a study was done where they gave 600 milligrams of magnesium once a day, and they did reduce frequency of attacks by 40%. So it's a pretty easy thing to add in. And that's something that I will talk to my patients about and again, tell them to talk to their provider. And that usually seems to be well-received. I think for both of these conditions, education mm. is really key. And certainly the neurologists and the ENTs can do that. But, you know, we get a lot more time with our patients than they do. And if it's anything like my clinic, patients are having to wait six months right now to see a neurologist or months and months to see an ENT. So I like to talk to my patients about here's the different yeah. problems that cause episodes of vertigo. Here's what Meniere's is. Here's migraine. Here's BPPV and just start to help them understand what we're looking for. And then if we do have a definite diagnosis, I spend at least my first session on education and lifestyle modification. So I will recommend that they get the Migraine Buddy app so they can start tracking their spells in the hopes that we're able to identify triggers. And if we can identify triggers, we can hopefully cut off the migraine 
before it happens. You know, migrators typically live in this constantly vulnerable state. And it, like Kalina said, you're kind of at this sub, sub threshold and it can just take something to kick it off. So if we can identify certain triggers, I've had really good success and some studies to support that um, we can identify triggers and lessen the, the uh, attacks. Um, the easy ones I start with is talking about sleep, getting, you know, go to bed at the same time, getting up at the same time, hydration, and then regular exercise. It's a it's an oldie but goodie study from 2011 where they showed that doing 40 minutes of um, aerobic exercise, I think it was done on a bike, three times a week was just as effective as a migraine medication in managing migraines. So I continue to cite that study regularly um, because it's just, you know, you could do this exercise three times a week and not have to take a medication. So that's usually where I start with my patients is let's try to identify triggers. Here's some common triggers that we know and go down that route. And we know there can be a lot of dietary things, but um, starting with that first and foremost is where I go. And then um, vestibular therapy, right? That's kind of what we are as vestibular therapists. So there's good evidence. The first study came out in um, 2000 where Sue Whitney and company looked at doing vestibular therapy with with vestibular migrators and they had really good success. Each program was tailored to each individual's objective outcomes. Um, So it wasn't kind of a one size fits all, which if you treat migrators, you know that's not the case. And they had some really good outcomes. And then there's been subsequent studies Um, Another really good one in 2013 that actually identified particular exercises that they did. I think it was it was it Helena Vidovic. I'm going to say it wrong. In 2013, that had some good information too. Um, The one thing I'll caution with is our being a migrator myself. um, We are sensitive people, and your migrators are sensitive people. So this is not research, but my go-to is really just to start with basic balance and sensory integration. So just maybe standing on the floor with your eyes closed and decreasing um, use of visual cues because migrainers sometimes tend to want to rely on those visual cues. Um, So I'll start with basic balance and then maybe kind of one disease slash habituation exercise and go from there and really take it slow. I'm not gonna push them to move their head really fast and do real aggressive therapy. So that's kind of what we'll do for migraine. It's less studied. Vestibular therapy is less studied in many years, but there was a study, I can't remember the year, by um, Kim Gottschall and and her group. And they did show good success with therapy, but it typically was when the patients had had an ablation or some kind of procedure that really is, like Helena talked about, took away the function of the inner ear. uh, Because at that point, they're really just a stable unilateral hypofunction. If I have a patient who isn't at that point yet, I still might work on um, adaptation, some VOR times one as maybe a way after they have a spell to try to bounce back from that a little quicker and retain their gaze stability. Um, But again, kind of tailored to their their needs. But if they're going through large fluctuations, it's going to be a little bit trickier to really get good outcomes with vestibular therapy. And I would just tack on to that, um, you know, you already mentioned individualizing care. And I think that um, both groups really need a little more of that 
because yeah. for Meniere's disease, it depends on kind of where they are <laughs> in the in the process. Are we still kind of figuring out diagnosis? Do we know what's going on? But we're just kind of trying to adapt as quickly as possible between spells because we're not, you know, committing to some sort of, you know, permanent situation. Um, and, you know, that's where that education will come in. And and maybe it's not a bunch of sessions, but just a, a little bit to say, oh, here's VOR exercises. This yeah. is what you, you would do during your spell to just kind of be safe. And then here's what you could do after to try to adapt quickly and, and balance and things like that. And then just kind of see where that goes. And then if they do go to a a situation where they have had an ablation, then, you know, to encourage them to follow up with you at least a bit after to make sure they get in a good place. Uh, whereas migraine is, is lifestyle management. It's, you know, one round of care I've had with a person where we really focused on balance. And then I saw them a year later and it was more neck because they'd kind of become guarded, you know, just from like kind of um, having, you know, a fear of the dizziness. And so they started to clean up headache and neck more like just need to be neck triggered headache, not just migraine headache. So, you know, just kind of sorting that out in the moment and figuring out what are your pieces of the puzzle right now. <laughs> um, and then of course, both of them knowing that they could get BBBV and encouraging them to when we know what that might look like and that, you know, we can help with that. And, and, I just had a lady who we had a really nice episode of care for migraine and she was doing really well. And then she had an episode of BBV and she kind of panicked. So not only did I treat the BBV, but I just reminded her, okay, like <laughs> go back to what you're doing. This is not a total setback. Like, you know, so um, these are definitely groups that we might, depending on the situation, see on and off over time. And uh, just like we're used to with our BBV uh, recurrent group. <laughs> so that's okay. Um, you know, and just kind of meet each patient where they are, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think that speaks to the challenges with this group in that these are fluctuating disorders. These aren't stable hypofunctions. And so you might make progress where you go two steps forward and then you have a step back. You um have to work through these triggers. And I kind of identified three I start with, but Helena just brought up another one, you know, the neck. And it's, I'll talk to the patients about like, sometimes it's, we're peeling away layers of the onion and we might think we have a handle on it. And then you go and do something over the weekend and poof, there's a spell. And now we've identified another, um, another trigger. So it, it's, you, at least with the migrainers, I find like it takes a little bit to start working with them, get a grasp on what their triggers are, also with vestibular therapy, I didn't mention this before, they may feel okay while I'm doing the exercises mm. worse later. And so they might come in the next time and, oh my gosh, I feel awful later. And so it's a little bit of a bumpy path out the gate sometimes. And that is not as straightforward as someone who's had the neuritis, they have the hypofunction, we've got clinical practice guidelines, we can do our 12 minutes a day and, and it's great. Um, this is kind of an up and down. And I think the more you work with these patients, it really, it helps. You can certainly go to courses and listen to us, but learning that each person is different certainly presents challenges. And the other piece I already spoke to is these, you may be the first person that they see with this. And that's a challenge in and of itself to talk about these more difficult diagnosis. Um, They're probably sent to you for vertigo and they've been taking meclizine and you know, you hope maybe it's BPPV, but perhaps it's, <laughs> and then you're looking to get this other diagnoses and starting to have to loop another provider. So it's a little bit of a not straightforward path, but 
the patients we can help. It's just super fantastic. Sometimes they're just happy to know there might be something else going on. So certainly while there's challenges, there's definitely that rewards that I really enjoy with, with seeing. I truly enjoy treating vestibular migraine. It's one of my favorite patient populations. And I think that last piece kind of ties into what I call prioritization. So, you know, just like you might need to do neck care before they can even do like a basic vestibular activity where they have to move their head. <laughs> um, you know, if you want them to exercise the way that, you know, might, you know, uh, reduce their need for medication potentially and things like that, like Sarah mentioned, they may be like, oh my gosh, I can't even think about getting on a treadmill or, you know, like, so like, what do you need to do to get there? Like, is it the motion sensitivity piece? Is it again, more neck? Is it more um, just, you know, having that stress management, like to kind of tamp down like the anxiety around trying to exercise, like, you know, so it, you do get to be a detective quite a bit in that sense. I think like what, even if you kind of know, yes, this is definitely vestibular migraine, you have all the signs, the doctor agrees, like we're all on the same page you know, your treatment again has to kind of circle around what are the goals and how do we get there? And, you know, maybe even a little trial and error, you might think, gosh, I'm going to start you with this really light activity and I don't think it's going to bother you. And then, oh, surprise, <laughs> oops, it does. And then you, you know, so you hopefully have somebody who's on board enough, um, you know, to work with you on that process because everyone can be pretty individual. Yeah. And it sounds like you just need to be very adaptable to how the patient presents at that time and be willing to change things up as need be. Um, is there any like final kind of parting words or advice that you want to give anybody as we wrap up the podcast? I would just say the research is always changing. So if you see a course or anything from the SIG coming out about these two disorders, you know, it's, it's always changing. Um, and so I think that would be my best advice. And if you aren't sure you're treating some of these patients and you're the only therapist, um, there's a lot of good resources. There's Facebook groups, the ANP, the vestibular SIG has just started, uh, where we get together, I was on the first one, we got together and talked about tough patient cases and those are happening every other month. So reach out to your colleagues that, that see this a lot and they could perhaps guide you. Yeah. And there's mentorship too. Um, if you're a member of the ANPT, um, they can match you with somebody who has vestibular experience. So that might also give you an opportunity. I like to have what I call my board. So that's like, you know, a, a mix of resources, mostly individuals, but sometimes also, you know, a Facebook group, group or something, and just kind of take that information. And you start to see patterns of like, okay, most people are suggesting this and, and that can help you know, also as a guiding framework um, so that, you know, you can kind of, I like to go through a list in my head, almost like with concussion sometimes like, okay, neck, okay, vestibular, okay, visual motion, okay, self-motion, okay, balance, okay, you know, like what are the kind of areas uh, that we might see um, that may or may not need to be addressed and, and, and from those kind of start to craft our treatment plan. Great. Thank you both for presenting on this topic and joining today. I really appreciate it. I'm sure all the listeners appreciate it. It's very helpful and informative. Thanks Thank for you. us. Yeah. Thank you for having Thank us. You. Thank you for listening to this interview, which has been brought to you by the Vestibular Special Interest Group of the Academy of Neurologic Physical Therapy. For more information on the Vestibular SIG and the ANPT, please visit www.neuropt.org. Thank you.